0: Hello, I'm Nicholas.
1: And I'm Kirsten. And this is Anthroposnips, where we explore recent-ish papers surrounding anthropogenic impacts on natural ecosystems.
0: So this is the first episode we're doing, which is not really a full episode. We decided that one, two weeks between full release episodes is kind of a long time to wait. And also, I think both of us really enjoyed doing a- this so much that we thought we could take on a little bit more. So therefore, Anthroposnips was born.
1: Right. And unfortunately, we don't quite have the time to do a full episode every week yet. But uh, we're just going to go ahead and do this. And the other thing that this, these Anthroposnips are going to give us the opportunity for is to explore... Things that are not necessarily just introduced or invasive species, but some kind of anthropogenic impact that we find interesting and we still want to speak about. And it's mostly going to look at one specific paper, and we're just going to go ahead and break it down for you and and speak a little bit about that.
0: It'll also be more or less laid back, more so less edited, kind of free form and relaxed than what our typical episodes are. This is kind of just a little something to wet your palate in between full episodes or if you just have a little bit of time to listen to something, the information will still be accurate and published information. It'll just be us kind of talking about it and we're essentially going to be discovering this information with you where we don't necessarily do as much research. We're just talking about something that caught our eye in more or less, like we said in the intro recent news, within the last few years at the very least
1: right yeah so i think that's about it so nicholas is actually gonna take away our first take it away sorry for our first episode here of anthroposnips number 1.5
0: yeah so this was pretty much the most recent paper that i could find basically because i wanted something that would be pretty fresh in the publication world but moreover because i had 3 hours of interviews today and it was the first thing that popped up when i was searching for an article to cite so it's a bit of me just being lazy but it did catch my eye and i think that the results could be incredibly interesting so this is a paper and excuse me if i mispronounce some names i apologize but i will do my best um by pereira dunk and benedito in 2021 published in neotropical which oh i'm sorry no published in biotropica and also i want to just make a point of saying that this paper was originally in portuguese and i translated it and i don't know portuguese so that being said there may be some things in here that i had to take a little bit of liberty to to try and understand or translate to make more sense and Honestly, by the time this paper comes out, there might be a fully translated copy of this this paper for you to look at. Either way, I've cited it in English in the bottom. So,
1: I mean, on that note, translation technology is getting pretty impressive these days. But uh, let's just see how it goes. I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to be fine with uh, breaking down those results.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, this it, it's not that I'm like paraphrasing directly or citing directly from the paper this is a uh, basically a summary of the paper as i read it also side note the other important note to make is that the abstract is the only thing you're going to find available without paying for it and without mentioning anything specific i I feel like all of you are intelligent enough to do the research on your own there are places you can go to to get free peer-reviewed and published papers and this isn't necessarily something that goes against the authors of the papers more or less they get none of the money for it and if all else fails you can just email the the writers and most of the time they're like incredibly excited to share with you their research if you do follow that make sure that you roughly translate into portuguese though because these authors are writing this in portuguese so you know, Google Translate, like we mentioned, is a very good tool right now. And then maybe also include something in English in case Portuguese doesn't translate very well. We um, would never
1: endorse using illegal software to get access to right. papers from journals that take advantage of scientists and then don't allow the papers to be out for free. Never, never. Right. Um. A really quick side note. I know we're getting a little sidetracked, but something researchgate has done wonders for me as well it's a free account that you can make um but it gives you better access to a lot of papers that might not otherwise be accessible and or it gives you direct contact to the authors without having to get an email to request papers so enough on that side note but researchgate is a really great resource and i definitely recommend anybody uh who's looking for papers to go ahead and use that as well on we go
0: Right, so let's get started. So essentially, the researchers hypothesize that human activities have negative impacts on the functional diversity in fish. And when I'm specifically talking about functional diversity, I'm essentially talking about the, the diversity that constitutes how an ecosystem functions. So on that principle, a more functionally diverse ecosystem would be one with a great degree of variance within food sources and habitat for the species that live there. And the introduction of anthropogenic activities such as fishing, travel, pollution, deforestation may have direct effects on the functional diversity of these ecosystems. So the pressure that's put on by human settlements and the utilization of these river stream ecosystems in neotropical Brazil are essentially causing negative impacts on the fish population. At least that's the hypothesis. So, this study specifically focuses on these neotropical streams located in southern Brazil. And these particular areas are within the Parana, Parana, Panama, Ivai, and Pirapo river basins. Again, I apologize if I pronounce those horribly. But they were looking to test essentially two hypotheses. So, one, that the aforementioned human pressure on ecosystems is directly proportionate to fish functional diversity, meaning that the presence of humans there and whatnot is affecting the diversity of the niche species within this ecosystem. Not necessarily the actual species of fish, but the morphological and phenotypic distributions of fish. So we're not focusing on like, okay, this one particular species of fish is affected by this. We're looking at, okay, the detritophores or the higher water column fish are affected, just as, as some examples.
1: Right, yeah. Functional so, groups break down into like predator, prey, herbivores, bottom feeders. So, yeah, not necessarily, like you said, the issues around biodiversity in a species sense, but functional diversity, which I think is something that ecologists are focusing more and more on every day, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you can't just look at a species and say, this is the only species that occupies this niche. I mean, obviously, there's niche partitioning, and they actually talk about that in this paper. But essentially, if you look at morphological differences in fish, and that's kind of what they're using as a basis for their, their study here, it seems as though... There's obvious trends that can be observed between morphological differences that are they cite in the paper as being consistent with what these fish are doing, how they're behaving and their importance to the ecosystem. So rather than specifically calling out a a type of fish, they're looking at a, a whole bunch of different species of fish that occupy these different areas. So I think that's a really cool way of approaching it as well, because I think a lot of studies tend to focus on on species specific data collection. And the second hypothesis that they're testing is the effects of human pressure on these ecosystems had direct effects on the fish morphologies that were present on these ecosystems, which is kind of what I was just talking about. So they're highlighting functional morphologies such as weaker swimmers and what they refer to as scraping feed behavior, uh, which are essentially low water column detritivores. So they're looking at a higher presence of these lower water column and bottom feeding fish. In areas with human presence, being that there's they're having an effect on the ecosystem and not allowing a more diverse, multi-niche occupation by other fish. So, to test their hypothesis, the research the researchers did surveys within these areas and they looked at the phenotypic variation in fish. So. I didn't see anything necessarily that specifically referenced any sort of fish species diversity. They referenced some fish species being present, but they didn't necessarily categorize these noted species within each of these areas that they were they were studying.
1: Right, so we're specifically looking at the the shape and size essentially, the the, mm-hmm. the morphology of these different fish in these areas and how they could be um like their their habitat could essentially be removed by by people's activity
0: right and they were looking for which morphologies were dominant in these these ecosystems so which ones were able to be prevalent in these ecosystems but also as a control comparing it to ecosystems with less human pressure and seeing what sort of niche partitionings and morphological diversity that those had as a comparison to say like okay well what could they actually have originally looked like? Or what are we trying to conserve as far as preserving these ecosystems in the future?
1: Right. It's important to have a baseline there to see what we're trying to compare it to, or it's kind of a null experiment, right?
0: Right. Exactly. You always need a control. So, the part that everybody's, of course, waiting for is the results. And the results here are actually pretty interesting. So, They cite that human pressure had direct impacts that influence functional diversity and traits. So some specific examples were that human land use correlated with species that reproduced internally and were more detritivorous, which is essentially saying that these ecosystems that are inhabited by humans or, or readily used by humans are not allowing for the more sensitive reproductive species and... The species that are not detritivores, meaning that there's not access to larger pieces of food, um, there's not as much food availability in these areas, and the reproductivity within these areas is sacrificed because these, well, of these anthropomorphic factors.
1: Right. So you're getting detritivores, uh, which are eating just essentially the the quote unquote garbage and the the decomposed material, but you're not able to get anything that's eating like bigger, maybe macro invertebrates or things like that. Is that what we're saying?
0: Yes, exactly. So the larger fish species that uh, think back to literally the first episode of the podcast, which you probably listened to before this. And you've got the filter feeders, which are essentially able to survive in more high pressure environments because they're filtering smaller particles so the larger predators and things like that are going to either one be fished out or two be directly affected by the imbalance caused by this human presence so one cool specific thing that's worth noting that they were looking for as far as morphology is the caudal peduncle So essentially a caudal peduncle is like a really fancy way of saying like the groove in the back of a fish's tail or the bow of a fish's tail. So the the caudal fin is essentially another way of saying the tail fin of the fish. And the caudal peduncle is that depression that essentially forms the tail that connects to the rear fin. And if you have a larger tail fin, you can occupy more muscle, you can displace more water, and you can move. And those are usually indicative of either predatory fish or fish that are swimming in in high, high turbulent environments or faster moving waters. Whereas detritivores, being that they're typically on the bottom and they're trying to not resist the water but to have it more streamlined, and they're not necessarily moving, to attack prey or significant distances as far as swimming goes, they don't need as much. So a detritivore is going to have a thinner tail. So this is one of the, the morphological features or the phenotypic features that they used as a basis for determining what type of fish are in these areas. On top of having like a larger caudal peduncle, those fish that have that larger swimming or that better swimming ability because of the large larger tails and things like that, They also have typically larger heads, which you can assume are used for predation, or at least eating larger bits of food. And due to human pressure in some of these surveyed ecosystems, these types of fish were all but eliminated, and you pretty much only had those very thin-tailed, detritivore, you know, bottom-feeding fish. That was all that was kind of nest historically these high pressure environments probably had niche partitioning in species because as they compared to the ecosystems under less pressure they noticed that there was definite examples of niche partitioning which i i guess i could briefly explain explain niche partitioning unless you want to
1: niche partitioning <laughs> is one. essentially just breaking an environment down into the niches or the sort of area and behavior that an animal uh, takes up so you have the really classic example of like Darwin's finches where some have bigger beaks because they eat the bigger seeds and you have little ones that eat different seeds and then it also has to do with the time of day that they live in and the actual physical area so it's essentially where and when that that animal lives and what it eats so that's that's the breakdown of it I think.
0: Exactly. It is just essentially the animals trying to not or or plants trying to not compete with one another and utilize an ecosystem services as best they can because obviously more competition is is detrimental to both species. If both species are able to live in the same niche but they don't necessarily occupy the same exact area or require the same food or active during the same day like kirsten just said then they're not going to compete with each other and it's mutually beneficial for all the species that live together so Correct. higher areas of niche partition niche partitioning are indicative of better ecosystem health better biodiversity and therefore better ecosystem services so therefore An ecosystem that is under high pressure and only exhibits a very singular niche occupied is not going to provide the same ecosystem services and is therefore less beneficial to conservation and species preservation and biodiversity. So to support everything that we just said The low-pressure ecosystems that we've been talking about, the ones that weren't necessarily as affected by humans, showed higher variation in the fish morphology and water column occupation, so there weren't just fish at the bottom, they were all the way to the top, they were in the middle, etc., which is the example of niche partitioning that we just described. So, the implications of this study what can be learned from this study because obviously they have correlations and we'll cite everything so you guys can check it out and read it for yourselves look at all the statistics and the correlations and things like that it's not just the authors making assumptions there are statistical correlations that are drawn and exhibited in this paper so Obviously, we want some implications from that. What can be done because of this study? So the authors are arguing that the implications from the study could be used to better approach management and conservation of river and stream development. By utilizing less invasive and high-pressure land usage, morphological and species variation could be preserved. Therefore, we could improve the overall ecosystem function and promote ecosystem health and strength by just better managing these ecosystems. Because it's very clear that excessive human impact, like one would probably hypothesize in general, is going to have a negative impact on the environment, which is something that a lot of you are listening are probably thinking, well, yeah, of course it is. If humans overuse an environment, of course it's going to become negative. Yes, it is. And we know this, and you know this. But we have to argue this. And if we want to argue things properly as scientists, we need to do it with facts. Because if we don't support our arguments with facts, then we don't have any concrete basis for our arguments. And therefore, they can either be disproven or there's no concrete support for our our statements or our positions on these conservation efforts to be supported. So... These papers, although to us they may seem a bit redundant, they're incredibly important to conservation and science communication to the general public who otherwise might not listen to you if you don't have a factual basis for these things. Because oftentimes I feel like things that are very obvious or seem very obvious to scientists are overlooked because we think they're so obvious, and then the public just doesn't have any frame of reference for it. They say, "Well, I've never seen that." Well, here's a study that directly shows that humans have negative impacts on the environment, and it can have reverse negative effects back on the humans. So, I think that this is a great study. Uh, It's it's it was done incredibly recently, so you can use it in pretty much any modern argument for conservation. And yeah, I think that's kind of one of the points of these snippets is just to bring to light little little things that we like. And of course, I'm always towards science communication and. And education toward the public so that's that's why i picked this one so that rules out my little snippet for this week we are done
1: right um one quick little note that i like to add uh before we totally wrap it up is i like that they used in the terms of communicating to the public too, speaking about these functional groups because When you you see a list like rattled off of all these Latin names of things that are in in trouble, I think that's really complicated. But if we say there are no more predators, or there are no more medium sized fish, or there are only these bottom dwelling fish, I think um, not only is it really uh like great from a scientific perspective because you can study these fish by looking at their morphology and not having to follow behavior which is so complicated but i think it's easier to communicate and it's important so i think that was an excellent pick for our first uh snippet Nicholas. Yeah. yeah great choice and
0: i just want to make one more clarification too. i did say that the authors were looking at morphological variations and not referencing species they are listing the species that are surveyed in these areas by the species that they are they're just not using the species specifically as the examples for their for their argument um because it you couldn't you it would take forever to list all of these species rather than you can just group them based on their their morphology but also their niche occupation and get a more clear example just like kirsten just said so um to wrap this up thank you for listening to our first snippet and uh do you have anything else to say kirsten
1: no i think that's it we'll see you guys next time for our next full episode
0: yep see you in episode two bye